Oh, you're listening to Left Out, reality-based independent radio on WRCT 88.3 FM and available on the World Wide Web at leftout.info. Left Out discusses the news from a perspective left out of the mainstream media. I'm Bob Harper. I'm Danny Slater. And today's program is produced by Matt Horniak. As usual, uh, listeners are invited to call the program at uh, 412-268-9728. That's 268-WRCT. Uh, or if you wish, you can, we monitor electronic mail. You can send us mail to, uh, by sending mail to bob at leftout.info. A uh, couple of announcements to begin the show. Uh, one is to remind everyone to listen to Democracy Now! broadcast every morning on WRCT at 8 a.m. Uh, and Democracy Now! also is a news program that presents a perspective left out of the mainstream media, and it'd be, uh, I think many of our listeners would enjoy uh, listening to Democracy Now! The other uh, announcement that we have is a very late-breaking news item that you may have heard leading into the program on the news at the top of the hour in WRCT, which I encourage our listeners to uh, to pay heed to, which is that uh, uh, Senator Harry Reid, who is the Senate uh, Minority Leader from Nevada, has has invoked a parliamentary maneuver in which he has uh, closed down the Senate and and brought it into uh, closed session in order to demand that, at long last, that the uh, the Senate investigate the uh, on the intelligence failures leading up to Iraq at uh, the war in Iraq. In particular, uh, he's refers to uh, part two, so-called part two of the Senate uh, investigation, which was suspended in order to allow for the election to occur in the absence of any useful information for the voters uh, at the end of last year after they finished the first part of the whitewash. Then in, uh, they agreed, uh, Senator uh, Senator from Kansas, whose name is escaping. Brown- Brownback uh, Brown uh, was in uh, in charge of uh, presenting, uh, d- dealing with part two, and has never happened. They've been putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. So today, uh, as uh, Senator Reid invoked what is called uh, uh, Rule 21 for the Senate, which allows, uh, on the basis of just a motion and a second, to force the uh, Senate to go into private session, which it was for two hours today. Um, and I'll quote from uh, from the motion made by uh, Harry Reid, saying that, uh, in particular, despite the fact that the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee publicly committed to examine these questions, the questions of the role of the White House Iraq group, the uh, manipulation of intelligence and so on, uh, more than a year and a half ago, he's chosen not to keep the commitment, despite the fact that he restated this commitment earlier this year on national television, he has still done nothing. So uh, Senator Reid goes on to say, I demand on behalf of the American people that we understand why these investigations aren't being conducted in accordance with Rule 21. I now move that the Senate go into closed session. And this was seconded by uh, Senator Dick Durbin. So I encourage uh, our listeners who call uh, Senator Reid's office, which is uh, in Washington, D.C., is 202, area code 202-224-3542, Give him a ring and uh, and please uh, express your support for his move. It's about time that the Democrats fought back and uh, started to demand some accountability from the crooks who are running our government, who have taken over our government throughout the country, and in particular the White House. And uh, and I'm really delighted to see uh, Senator Reid uh, Senator Reid take, taking action. Uh, and a little amusing little side note: uh, Bill Frist, you you may many of our listeners I think may enjoy uh, watching Bill Frist whine like a baby. Uh, one of his com- over this maneuver, one of his comments was that um, that uh, uh, the former uh, Senate uh, Minority Leader from uh, South Dakota. 
uh, whose name is escaping me as well. I'm having trouble with names today. Uh, I would never have done this before. I would never have done this maneuver. So, uh, yes, and, and all the while Tom Daschle, he was referring to Tom Daschle, and uh, Daschle never never did anything like this. And so, uh, and I would say, yeah, right. And uh, so, uh, bully for Harry Reid. Uh, he's really shown himself to be an effective fighter on behalf of some uh, semblance of reason. So please uh, give his office a call and uh, and register your support for this move. I think it's a very important, uh, very important uh, development in the Senate, and I think we've not seen the end of this, uh, not seen the end of this, of uh, uh, this yet. Thank, thankfully, Danny. So uh, we have on the line, um, I believe, um, a, a guest for um, the first half of our show, uh, Chris Mooney. Chris, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Great. Thank you for being on our show. Sure. Thanks for having me. Chris is um, uh, an author of a, of a recent book called The Republican War on Science, and I, I believe he's a, re- a science reporter for um, – What do you work for a newspaper? I'm sorry. I've, I've, I've forgotten, Chris. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm a Washington correspondent for Seed Magazine. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, anyway, so Chris has is, uh, is, uh, is, is written this, uh, this excellent book called The Republican War on Science, which um, documents um, in great detail um, a variety of techniques, uh, a whole range of different, different uh, uh, ways in which uh, the Republican um, political machine has, has interfered with, um, with science in ways that, uh, that have impact on, on political or on business uh, in politics. Um, so uh, maybe we could just start talking about some of your um, some of the more interesting uh, or, or more extreme uh, examples of 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 what uh, of what's been going on that, that has sort of gotten not gotten a lot of a lot of press. Um, so uh, maybe you could just uh, give a couple examples or, or uh, of what you know you feel is are, are the most interesting ones. Sure. Well, science being misused by the current Republican Party, by the current administration, in order to serve the interests of constituents, religious conservatives on the one hand, um, and regulated industry on the other. So you get misuses of science to satisfy religious conservatives in relation to issues like embryonic stem cell research, evolution, um, sex education, things like that. And then you get them to appease industry on issues like global climate change, mercury pollution, um, science of obesity, and so forth and so on. And um, there's been just a wide array of abuses of science, interferences with the scientific process, attacks on individual scientists. You know, it's hard to know which case studies are really the most outrageous. Uh, I think that um, one way of determining what would be the most outrageous would be to say that if the president himself actually utters something that's wrong or misleading, then that's probably the worst since it goes right up to the top. Uh, And in that sense, I think that probably President Bush's false assertions that there would be more than 60 embryonic stem cell lines under his stem cell policy, uh, which he promised on August 9, 2001. I think that that's really quite extraordinary um, because this was just wrong. And, of course, immediately after it was announced, scientists were instantly saying, what 60 lines? We're not aware of any 60 lines. So, so that was if you could amplify this point for our, for our listeners and remind them what the, what the main outlines of that story were. Do you want, you want me to do that? Yes, please, Chris. Sorry. Sure. Well, the president was trying to decide, um, trying to announce a federal policy for whether embryonic stem cell research would be funded, and 
ultimately hit on what he thought was a wise compromise, and the idea was that only research would be funded on pre-existing stem cell lines. And the compromise was sold to the American people um, as one in which there would be moral limits, but a significant amount of research would go forward. And so it depended on how many lines already existed. And here was where the president misled the American public by claiming that 60 existed. So it was a very uh, fundamental piece of information for his policy. Yeah. Of course, I mean, that, that also... I guess that's a different question than what uh, what I would what my immediate response was. You know that the whole idea that you would that you would limit the use of, of these these embryos which were collected for uh, in vitro fertilization, um, uh, which were going to be thrown out anyway, uh, that that would be somehow uh, taboo to use these things which were going to be thrown away anyway. Uh, that makes no logical sense to me. But I guess that's sort of peripheral to just the the, the basic fraudulent claim that there were 60 lines. Uh, when there just weren't. Well, you need to make a distinction. Uh, I, I personally agree with you in what you just said. I think that if the uh, you know if the embryos are being discarded anyway, I think that it is a moral imperative to conduct potentially uh, life-saving research on. But um, I'm really just talking about the misuse of science. I'm not talking about making a moral judgment uh, that I may or may not agree with. Yeah. I'm talking about misleading the public, and so, that was the way in which the president misled the public, which was to say that more than 60 lines would be available, and, and, and they were not available. And he should have known this because it, it was, his claim was ended up being based on a very elementary error than the competent science advice would have caught. But based on everything else that has gone on with the Bush administration's treatment of science, I mean, one suspects that it wasn't really a mistake as much as it was uh, a misrepresentation. Well, we just don't know exactly what happened, do we? But, uh, you know, right. I, I suspect as well. All I can tell you is that it's not an excusable error. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the, the whole, this whole pattern of abuse that has emerged, particularly I think it's gotten acute with the Bush administration, but it really uh, has started uh, quite, a, quite a while ago. Certainly uh, one could trace it back to the Reagan era. And I wonder if you could explain that and really perhaps in the terms that would justify your use of the term uh, the Republican War on Science. Why is it Republican and why is it a war? Well, it's a systematic undermining of scientific information in key areas, um, but a number of key areas that are central to policymaking. And war is a metaphor that is intended to describe a comprehensive assault uh, on scientific information. Now, it is a Republican war because it happens when Republicans are in power, and it happens because Republicans are catering to their constituents, uh, religious conservatives and big business, so it's, it's a function of the state of the Republican Party today that it behaves this way. It is central to how the party works. Uh, it is part and parcel of the party infrastructure. Religious conservatives are central to Republicans getting elected. So is big business, um, campaign donations and so forth. And these groups then get what they want. What they want is to attack science. And that, sure enough, is what happens in a Republican government or in a Republican-controlled Congress. So, so somehow I think there's been a, a gradual evolution of this process. I don't think this was happening back when, for example, Eisenhower was president. Um, I, I think that I don't either. Um, there's uh, been a general. Well, I mean, it, I, putting this in context, I mean, this is a very meta, po a meta point. But somehow, in the last, I don't know, decade or so, the rules have just been uh, stretched. Uh, in, in all directions where they're using uh, all kinds of maneuvers 
distorting science is actually just one aspect of this. It, another aspect is, for example, the, the way they're abusing the, the rules in the House of Representatives. And another aspect is, for example, what happened in Texas where they did redistricting in the middle of the decade. Um, there's just generally been, and, and pr prior to this, it was sort of, I think there was an attitude towards science that science was sort of sacred and that you had to listen to the scientists and their, their, their advice and take that information into account and, and not try to distort it. But I think gradually, along with all of the other uh, sort of decent rules of decent behavior, that, that's gone out the window. Uh, I agree. <laughs> I think that there's a lot less honesty in our politics generally and a lot more spin, misinformation, and everything ends up boiling down to strategy uh, and trying to manipulate the media and the public. Uh, I think that's the way politics plays itself out nowadays. I think that the, what I call the war on science is part of, part of that uh, I bit off about as much as I could chew in writing a book of about course. science, but it yeah. certainly extends further. I mean, I certainly think that there are strong analogies between, uh, you know, misleading the public about the number of available stem cell lines and then putting out a policy based on that and misleading the public um, about Iraqi WMD. Um, and then <laughs> it's all of a piece. having a policy based on that, which but, ended up but, but certainly, war. But, but certainly the, the thing about the war that I think is so important about the war on science is that one would think that rational people could agree that we should at least have an apparatus, a policy-making apparatus that's informed by facts. But I think that there has been a pattern you document very, very nicely in your book, a pattern of either suppression of scientific information or deliberate distortion of scientific information by the Bush administration. And I wonder if you might give some examples of the kind of distortion and suppression that they've engaged in the last couple of years. Sure. Well, we were just getting started with the stem cell. Right. That's thing. one. That, that's 2001, and then we have to take ourselves all the way up to 2005. So okay. It's quite a long slog. <laughs> take a drink of water. Right. Well. So let's switch issues now. Um, and, you know, climate change is probably one of the ones where their abuses are sort of littered over the last four years. Uh, and essentially it goes back to the beginning of the administration with the president, you know, talking about the science and just saying it's very uncertain, which is, of course, very misleading um, because we know a lot. And to just say what's uncertain is, is uh, misrepresenting the public what's known. Uh, you know, and it's gone on where the administration has sort of always regularly run away from the science, and um, some of the most egregious abuses have come when political people in the White House have tried to actually edit scientific documents coming out of the federal expert scientific agencies. Right. So we have a number of cases, and that, and that just more. totally violates the integrity of the scientific advisory process, uh, and just the integrity of governance. Um, you know, <laughs> there's a reason that we have scientific expert agencies, and political people are not supposed to be doctoring the information that they put out. But, you know, that's clearly happened, for example, at EPA. Uh, the charges are well documented that the White House tried to edit the climate change section of an EPA report on the environment, you know, taking out references to even studies by the National Academy of Sciences and essentially changing the, uh, the meaning of the section quite radically. Uh, those kinds of things. There's also, you know, in terms of suppression, this administration refuses to cite a Clinton era report on climate change, which is called the National Assessment. And what it does, it's very unique. It studies how climate change could affect the United States. And no wonder people don't want uh, this to be widely cited because it'll get people worried about what's happening in their backyards. The Bush administration just refuses to even cite the existence of this document, and there have been various attacks on it and attempts to suppress it. You know, 
that kind of thing is really very disturbing as well. But, you know, with climate change, there's just a multitude of case studies where essentially the administration is running away what's known from what's known um, or misrepresenting what's known, and in some cases engaging in more nefarious activities like suppression and forced editing of documents in order to make sure that uh, either information isn't getting out to the public, but I think what they're really afraid of is some scientific document coming out from the administration uh, that endorses what's actually known about climate change because then reporters will say, aha, you know, you're admitting the science, now why aren't you doing anything? And so they're ter- I think they're terrified of that kind of media effect and having to answer pu- questions from reporters about climate change, which is a problem they generally tend to avoid, uh, although there are certain cases where they have been caught and then they end up looking bad. So I think it's, I think it's kind of spin control. So, so I think there was at least one case, for example, where the uh, the annual report from the EPA, a section on climate change, was replaced by a document written by the American Petroleum Institute. Isn't that right? Um, uh, I wouldn't. I don't think that's exactly right. Uh huh. Um, I think we're talking about the same thing, but I don't think uh, it, it led to Christy Whitman's American. resignation. What's that? It led to Christy Whitman's re- resignation as the head of the. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure that the, yeah. the facts are completely. I mean, uh-huh, okay. they were, clearly, they were playing around with this EPA report. Uh-huh. I'm not sure that it was replaced by an American Petroleum Institute. By that, I don't know about. Um, they were political uh-huh. people were changing the content of the EPA's report, and eventually, the EPA, you know, decided to just not have a section on this. So, another example that you might want to talk about is the elimination of the Office of Technology Assessment. Well, this is more of a historical mm-hmm. thing that happened that I think contributes to the problems that mm-hmm. we're seeing today, and is part of the Republican war on science in the sense that it shows how the Gingrich Congress behaved towards science. Uh, and it's very consistent with what we're seeing now. Uh, and this is when the Gingrich Republicans took over, they got rid of their world-renowned scientific advisory office, the Office of Technology Assessment, which had been advising Congress at that point for over 20 years and had gotten very good at what it did. Um, and the alleged reasons were budgetary, but that really doesn't wash because it was only a small amount of money. And, in fact, OTA was able to save Congress much more money than Congress spent by just informing decisions better. And there have actually been studies that have demonstrated that OTA saved much more money than it cost. Uh, so that just doesn't add up. I think it was political. I think they th- thought that this office was a creature of the Democrats who had run Congress for decades. And they were suspicious of it politically, and they didn't like its reports, which had essentially shot down Reagan's Star Wars program um, very effectively. Right. And so... It was a political decision, in my view, to get rid of the scientific advisory office so that they wouldn't have to deal with some of its reports. And, of course, this helps science get much more politicized because then members of Congress can go one-stop shopping for scientific expertise from lobbyists, think tanks, interest groups, um, much less unbiased sources of information. And that's the situation that we are still in now. So we're talking to uh, Chris Mooney, who's the author of a new book called The Republican War on Science, in which he documents a number of uh, uh, things that have happened uh, in, in the, since the uh, Reagan era in, in uh, suppressing, distorting uh, uh, scientific information to the extent that it should be informing uh, mer- uh, public policy. Uh, listeners are welcome to call us at uh, 412-268-9728. That's 268-WRCT. And you can also send mail to bob at leftout.info. So there's a chapter in the book about um, the Data Quality Act of 2000, um, which sounds good. It sounds good that you know we want data to have high quality. 
Um, but um, it uh, turns out to be a, um, a tool to be used uh, against, mainly by corporations, against um, against scientists and scientific uh, research. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. Well, this is one of the more highly developed and extremely insidious strategic moves to undermine science that industry doesn't agree with. You need a little backstory here. Um, one of the reasons that the political abuse of science is so bad and so bad under Republican governance is that regulated industry has increasingly um, focused upon a strategy to avoid government regulation that involves attacking the scientific basis for government regulation. And this is a strategy that has essentially gained momentum over time. And what they want to do is they want to change the government regulatory process itself so that it's easier for them to challenge science that government agencies might be using in deciding to take a particular kind of action. And by creating a fight over science, they are essentially able to create paralysis or inaction. The Data Quality Act is an ideal tool for achieving this objective because it says it's about ensuring the quality of data, but what it actually does is create bureaucratic hurdles to the use of data in decision-making at a government agency. So essentially, the Data Quality Act sets up a process in which a self-interested party, generally industry, because that's who uses it most, is able to petition an agency to protest the use of a particular piece of scientific information of some sort. And often the petitions are very long and detailed, and the agency is compelled to respond. And so it takes time. It takes man hours. It slows you down, and of course the, the petition process goes two rounds. So if the industry doesn't like what the agency says in response, industry petitions again, the agency responds again, and so forth. What the ultimate goal is, which hasn't been achieved yet, or it's not clear that it's been achieved, is to then be able to sue uh, the agency over bad information and drag it into the courtroom, which, of course, um, not only does it give industry lawyers a chance to attack science uh, before a judge who may not be very informed about the science, but also um, could potentially slow down the process even further. So the Data Quality Act is a mechanism to enable attacks on science, and under the Bush administration, it has been seized upon and really has become a central feature of science policy making in the administration. So it gives a gives a industry interest a, a way a large role of red tape to uh, to uh, really gum up the work so that uh, things cannot policy cannot go forward based right. on this information. That's yeah, uh, quite. It's really uh, tragic. So there was a. I, now I, I, I forgot to bring the book with with me. I'm for, I'm sorry about that. But there was a, there was a specific use of that act described in in that chapter um, about a certain drug. Uh, it's not a drug, but a certain um, pesticide. What was that pesticide called? Uh, it was an herbicide. Um, essentially, there was scientific information coming in suggesting that an herbicide uh, called atrazine. This is one of the first uses of the Data Quality Act, and it was very symbolic um, for a lot of reasons, because here was industry using the Data Quality Act just the way everyone thought that it would be used, which was to attack studies suggesting that uh, a particular company's chemical was having bad environmental effects. And then apparently some other studies were done, but they were all funded by the industry producing the, uh, the, 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 the studies which contradicted the, the scientific, the, the legitimate studies were all industry-funded, and they found that this, this atrazine stuff was not, was not as lethal as, as, as the original study did. But, of course, they were all industry-funded, so they're really suspect in, 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 in the significance. Or, or, you know. Well, there's a big fight yeah, between scientists who essentially were working with the company or working with a company that was working with the company. I forget the exact details. Um, 
Okay. And the scientist who had originally published the data suggesting that atrazine was harmful. But the Data Quality Act served as a nice way to undermine the sort of cutting-edge science um, suggesting atrazine's risk, and, and EPA ultimately ended up saying, you know, we don't have enough information <sighs> here to use this study. And so it worked. Um, you know, uh, they said that there was too much uncertainty and so forth. And so they yeah. didn't, you know, they didn't take regulatory action based on that research. Okay, we have a we have a caller, Bridget in Bloomfield, for Chris Mooney, author of the Republican War in Science. Go ahead, please. Yeah, hi. Um, hi. I'm yeah. a researcher here at Pitt, and um, just like sort of a personal anecdote about the way Bush, or the way science has been going since Bush has been in office, um, especially since the 2004 election. Um, the amount of funding available for biomedical resource research, uh, research has been getting less and less progressively with each grant cycle. Um, before he was reelected or whatever, in 2004, it was close to like one-fifth of the grants that went in to the tumor immunology, autoimmunity, and transplant immunology uh, grant section. You're getting like 20% of those grants funded, and now it's almost 90% of all grants submitted are being rejected. Yes, in, my, in my field, it's less than 5%. Yeah. Yeah, and huge, because they're, they're funneling uh, money into this bioterrorist research. It's like politicizing what you're, you know, trying to study. If you want to get money, you have to somehow spin that, you know, my kidney patients are more likely to be susceptible to uh, <laughs> anthrax. Or something. You know, I mean, it's like, it's insane. Every time you write a grant and you're like, God, the, the chances of getting it funded are just less and less every four months. So, Chris, uh, I think we are in the, in the science. Uh, thank you, Bridget. Uh, in the scientific community, are really being faced with you know successive cuts for funding, and I wondered if you might want to comment on that. Sure. Well, I, we've been talking so far about what I call uh, the integrity of science, mm -hmm. and now we are moving into a different area, okay. um, which is science. Um, well, the integrity of science affects science for policy in the sense that this is scientific information that's being used make political decisions in a wide variety of areas. And the other realm is policy for science, which is <laughs> how good. do you fund? Nicely you put. Fund. Um, and it's a different area, and I think the rules are a little different uh, in the sense that I do believe that politicians um, have the not only the right but the obligation to make decisions about how to spend taxpayer money. And so they are empowered to do so, and the decision of what to fund is not entirely a scientific decision. It is a decision based on values, uh, judgments about what matters, uh, and obviously, you know, grants should be dispersed based on peer review and the best science and so forth. But the total amount of money uh, can be a political decision. So I've been a little bit more hesitant. I realize I know very well the scientific community is incredibly concerned about funding situation right now. Um, I don't think that it is that what we're seeing when we see funding cuts are misuses of science. I think what we might be seeing is attempts by the administration to punish scientists. Yeah, um, that's right. For, so that for calling them out for misuses of science, but um, so, so that leads to another point about the motivation for some of these abuses. I mean, one is that we've already talked about is really the service of corporate interest, but the other is an appeal to anti-intellectualism and uh, and the the constant use of uh, scientists as a representative of a uh, of an elite of some kind. I wondered if you can comment on that. Um, sure. Well, I think when we talk about anti-intellectualism. Uh, what we're really talking about is um, 
a kind of trend within the modern conservative movement, which is now dominant in the Republican Party, that involves a distrust of the nation's, of academia, of the nation's leading universities and uh, liberal intelligentsia. And the whole point of the reason they're distrusted is because they're suspected of being liberally tilted and having a liberal bias against the conservatives. So therefore, all the science they're putting out is suspect. Uh, I think that there is that disposition there. And I think that this is one of the things that makes the misuses of science seem to come easier to uh, the Republicans, or at least to the conservative Republicans, because I think that the moderates are somewhat of a different story. Um, you know, and, and certainly, uh, you know, I think that this is also very strong in the religious conservative movement. Um, you know, a, a very strong distrust of universities and university science. Universities are seen by them, I think, um, by the Christian right as very, you know, secular places. Um, they don't necessarily even want to send their kids, yeah. much less have their kids learn the science coming out of these places. Well, I think that's been reflected in, in what, the, what the caller just mentioned as well. That I think that a lot of the science that uh, it's being moved, the funding from the government is trying, they're trying to move it into, into industry. Um, so in, in the computer science area and the, certainly defense funding, we, we at Carnegie Mellon Computer Science used to be funded heavily by the, the, um, the DARPA or ARPA, the Advanced Research Projects Administration, inside the Defense Department. But I think more and more money of the, from, from that is being moved into uh, Beltway uh, you know, uh, research corporations instead of university. And that, that may be ultimately the, the, the sort of reason behind it. It may, may be sort of what you just said related to that. I don't know. Because I, I really doubt they're getting better research for the, uh, for the, for the money they're putting in from the, these Beltway companies than they got from the universities. But uh, you know they're loath, probably loath to support these institutions, which uh, which hate them. Well, the the angle I was uh, heading toward with the anti-intellectualism was the topic of uh, creationism, which the uh, which the uh, uh, the uh, Republican government has been trying to push into the science curriculum. And uh, well, but you do have to be careful there because. Um the Republican government does not really have any control over state level. No, that's true. But I, they, but you get when you get the president saying that, or or the you know senator saying that we ought to be uh, teaching you know creationism in uh, high schools as part of the biology curriculum. I think you, what you really are is having a government interference in education. Sure. And, and this is a, this is a and for example here at the moment uh, at the uh, local level, there's a w well-known case in York, Pennsylvania going on right now that's a few hundred miles east of here, uh, but it's about uh, creationism in, uh, in, in science classes and also uh, in Kansas this past spring. I think their their report has not yet come out. So I wondered if you might comment on that. I think you comment on that is in your book a little bit as well. Sure. Well, I've been over there in Dover, Pennsylvania three times now in Harrisburg, uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, you know, hanging out in the courtroom watching oh, okay. the trial go down. Good. So you I'm know very, well. very conversant with the case. Good. I mean, this is, Tell you know, please. the new creationism resurgent right now. It's called intelligent design creationism, but it's right. just a newly evolved form of creationism, because creationism evolves from time to time in response <laughs> to It's ironic, precedence. isn't it? Right. In, in response to legal precedents and political strategizing, um, and, you know, political of the it causes natural selection to act on creationism. <laughs> and um, so now we have intelligent design, and this fight has been building for a long time, but it has really exploded. It's exploded in the sense that the president has been compelled to comment upon it. It's exploded in the sense that we see a brush fire of fights across the country over this issue, and the fight in Dover is only the one that's the most advanced in the sense of actually getting into the court.
is really one of the most fundamental scientific integrity issues facing us all, because, you know, if you can't stand up for evolution, you know, what can you stand up for? This is a bedrock of modern scientific knowledge, and uh, there are a few things more fundamental to our scientific understanding today than evolution. There are a few things that are better backed up than evolution. So if evolution is under attack, you know, it's hard to know what else you can do. Um, and then again, this is, you know, it fits the Republican war on science nicely. Not only do Republican politicians kowtow to intelligent design, President Bush, Senator Frist, and so on, but this is a movement that is coming out of the Christian conservative base. As I point out in my book, pretty much every um, important organization on the Christian right is an organization supportive of intelligent design. Uh, and so there's a very strong overlap between the Republican Party's constituency today and the people who are pushing intelligent design at the state level. And just to be clear, the issue is really the, whether this is science and ought to be part of a science curriculum. Right. Well, I mean, yes, yes. So, it's, I mean, it's an integrity of science issue because they're undermining evolution. Right. And they're not only undermining evolution, but they're proposing an alternative that is not science by any known modern definition of science because science does not invoke an unknown <laughs> right. designer. There's no explanation being. at all. Um, that, yes, that's right. It's beyond science to do so, uh, to invoke the supernatural. Is there, that's is, what intelligent design fundamentally does. Is there a definition of intelligent design? Because this is something we actually talked about a little bit on a previous show with uh, Sean Carroll, who's another author that you may have heard of. Yeah. Um, where... It was it was confusing to me because some of the advocates of intelligent design seem to acknowledge that uh, that species change over time, over you know billions you know billions of years, uh, and humans evolved from you know other animals, um, but just that at these sporadic moments that the, the divine some sort of divine intervention occurred. But it seems to me if once you say that you're already giving giving in to what the religious people are most uh, most uh, averse to. Well, do they believe that about humans? Yeah. I mean, because, you know, that's what they really care about. Yeah, so, I mean, at the... But, uh, you know, th th there may be a couple people who claim to be doing intelligent design who nevertheless uh, accept some, some notion of common descent uh, of living organisms, um, you know, everyone having a common ancestor, all species having a common ancestor, but then nevertheless... The designers somehow still needed to tinker now and again. But generally, intelligent design <laughs> is an anti-evolutionary. Right, that's an important point. Please. The argument is that evolution—it's anti-evolutionary because it says evolution is not sufficient to explain uh, biological complexity or biological diversity. Um, so, the, the, so it's an attack on the evolutionary mechanism, saying this can't produce what we see. That's what it is. Um, the thing is, it's not a scientific attack, it's kind of vague philosophizing, uh, saying that it can't. Well, you know, I mean, scientists who study this are more than confident that it can, and that it does. Uh, and the amount of evidence supporting that contention is entirely massive. So, Good. Well, thank you uh, very much. We've been talking with uh, Chris Mooney, who's the author of a really very interesting new book called The Republican War on Science, which really documents a lot of the abuses and misuses and suppression of scientific information by uh, by our government. Chris, uh, thank you very much for being on the show. And uh, thank you. We'll have a brief break, and we'll be back shortly with Left Out. We want to change topics a little bit here and um, want to go back to... Um 
to some uh, more recent events and some old events as well. We want to just uh, gloat for a second uh, about uh, something we talked about here over two years ago on Left Out. It was back in October of 2003, and we had a, did a segment about the, uh, the Valerie Plame um, and J- Joe Wilson um, outing, uh, and uh, well, the, the outing of Valerie Plame and that whole that whole that whole thing, uh, back when it just had, had gotten going. And um, one of the things that uh, that Bob um, uh, predicted was that uh, Lewis Livy was involved, and uh, we can play a, a, a brief segment of that show to. Uh, to, to, to demonstrate this. So we have a number of uh, number of uh, points I'd like to raise and talk about uh, today uh, about this story. So there's quite a lot of discussion going on. Uh, one is uh, who was really behind the case. I mean, was the White House really behind the case? And at the moment, uh, we don't really know that. But the leading speculation is, of course, the first person you would think of is uh, is Karl Rove, who is. Uh, uh, George Bush's uh, political operative, and easily the uh, number one suspect in the, in the case. But another uh, that another uh, possibility which has been raised and seems a bit more uh, superficially more plausible to me is that uh, Scooter Libby was behind it. Scooter Libby being Vice President Cheney's uh, assistant and right hand man for many years. The reason I would say that is that um, there was a vice president who was most uh, who was embarrassed by by the revelations from Ambassador Wilson, since he had gone there on, at the vice president's request and reported that information back. And in fact, I would say that the tactics that uh, that were uh, taken by uh, by someone in the White House uh, are a reflection of the fact that Wilson's allegations are undoubtedly true. So that was uh, Left Out. That was a little segment from Left Out on October 5th, 2003, a little more than two years ago, in which I was uh, saying that uh, Scooter Libby was the most likely person to be behind the outing. At that time, uh, I had never heard of Scooter Libby. Uh, is that true? I thought, what's he talking about? Uh, <laughs> uh, behind the outing of Valerie Plame. And and uh, sure enough, here we are two years later, and who is the person who is, is behind the outing of Valerie Plame, but none other than I, Lewis Scooter Libby, who is the... Uh, Vice President Cheney's uh, chief of staff and chief henchman, and who very clearly was uh, was behind uh, the entire operation. Actually, very clearly, Dick Cheney was behind the entire operation, but Libby is the one who uh, did the dirty work, as usual, with these characters. Uh, so, of course, I'm engaging in a little bit of gloating. Uh, you'll forgive me. Listeners will forgive me for gloating. But my real point is not so much to say uh, as, a, as a pers- the personal satisfaction of having been right. The thing that I think is remarkable and notable and, and worth discussing here is not so much that I, I happen to be right on that because I didn't have any particular you know information that anybody else didn't have, but the fact that no one else was. I mean that's the thing that's shocking to me is that if you look in the you know mainstream news sources, uh, th- first of all the whole story was ignored as much as possible, and most of the American public, I mean I don't think even hardly knew anything about this until this last couple of weeks when everything is blown up with uh, Judith Miller. Last couple of months, really, but particularly the last couple of me- weeks with uh, Judith Miller going to jail for reasons that we still don't fully understand, uh, and then this leading to the indictment of uh, Louis Libby on perjury and obstruction of justice charges, facing, uh, I think, as much as uh, something like 20 years in prison uh, and, uh, and a large fine, yeah. but uh, these are minor matters, you know, because perjury, lie, obstruction of justice, I mean, it doesn't really matter as long as you're a Republican, right? That seems to be the, rule, yeah. the rules of the 
the game. But the point for me then, though, to emphasize is that, you know, this kind of speculation, I think, was uh, was just a matter of pure logic, right? It was obvious who was behind uh, this. It was obvious that they were going after Wilson because Wilson was exposing their lies. It was obvious that they were warning anybody else who wanted to expose their lies. It was obvious that this had to come from Cheney's office uh, that rather than any, anywhere else in the organization. And, and therefore, it was obvious that Lewis Libby would be the one who was behind it. It yeah. was only a question in my mind but, is whether we'd actually catch them and actually but make Rove it is also is also clearly involved. Uh, and it I seems mean, that he, Rove is also I mean, clearly involved, right? Cooper, has it, said it, that Rove was the one who told him. It so, does seem to be the case, um, and we'll find out in the next couple of weeks uh, if the other shoe drops from uh, Patrick Fitzgerald's office to see whether Rove is, in fact, charged in the affair. But certainly, uh, if you look at the indictment of Louis Libby, uh, it's perfectly clear that he uh, lied to the grand jury and lied to the FBI. Certainly, if the charges in the indictment are to be believed, and if you know anything about the history of this story, they are awfully plausible. It's also very plausible because, you know, recently uh, Colonel Wilkerson, who was uh, the chief of staff, these chiefs of staff get around, who is the chief of staff for, for Colin Powell while he was secretary of state, has recently been speaking out. Uh, he gave a speech a couple of weeks ago and also wrote an opinion piece in the Los Angeles Times describing the, as he put it in his word, the cabal that was running our foreign policy that was mm -hmm. being uh, run by uh, Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld and all of their henchmen, including, of course, Guter Libby. Um, and into selling and fraudulently selling the Iraq war. So I have a couple of comments about it also, about the, the indictment and stuff. Um, first one is um, noted by Bob on, on the webpage. Um, was Cy Hirsch's comments uh, last week, or couple, within the last few weeks. Cy Hirsch, of course, is a famous journalist, an investigative journalist for The New Yorker, and he was basically saying that Fitzgerald was, was going to go deep and expose this neocon conspiracy that has taken over the government. He, he had huge expectations for what, for what um, Fitzgerald was going to do. Um, and uh, I also note that on uh, Democracy Now!, I think last week, one day last week, they had uh, Mel Goodman, who's a former CIA analyst, on there also on Democracy Now!, and he was also saying, you know, anticipating uh, that uh, Fitzgerald would be a hero who uncovers this whole mess that wasn't being investigated by the Senate uh, or, or anybody else. And uh, it looks to me I, I, like uh, it's, it's a disappointment uh, that uh, the way that um, Fitzgerald seems to be moving is just uh, in a very narrow uh, a, a direction toward this one charge and not investigating the whole insane um, the fraud that, that was carried out to sell the war the American people. This was just one small piece of it. Um, so um, I was watching. Um, so anyway, I'm disappointed. I think uh, with, with with the way things have gone, uh, it was it was a, it was a potential light that we you know we were hoping to, to shine on all of this, and it, it just didn't seem to have happened. Um, but uh, I was watching the the TV over the weekend. I watched uh, Meet the Press on Sunday. Um, and um, there's been other articles uh, about the way the me mainstream media is handling the indictment, and I want to just make a few comments about that. So uh, Meet the Press, it started out uh, really great. started out, uh, they, they showed some clips of, um, of Bush and Cheney during the 2000 campaign. Um, Bush says, <laughs> he gives this, this rousing speech where he says, we're going to restore honor and dignity to the, to the White House. Uh, Cheney gives a speech, I think, at the, uh, Dem the, the, the Republican convention um, in 2000. Uh, we will restore decency and integrity to the Oval Office. 
They offer legalisms and carefully worded denials. We offer another way and a stiff dose, dose of truth. So uh, his characterization of you know Clinton offering legalisms and carefully worded, not, worded denials, of course, this is exactly what they're doing now with all of this, this stuff. Uh, and in fact, it's, it's even worse that they're at the point of not even, they've stopped even offering denial, carefully worded denials. They were doing that for a while. McClellan was denying that Rove and Libby had anything to do with it. Now they're not denying it anymore. They're simply refusing to talk about it. Yes. Um, so, uh, but that was, a, I thought, a, a good beginning of the show, and I was optimistic that maybe they were going to start, you know, digging into this uh, in a serious way. But uh, eventually uh, they started talking to the pundits they had on, and they had uh, several people, um, probably, you know, eight different people on the show, uh, they had Brooks. Uh, David Brooks, David, the columnist for the, the New, uh, York New York Times. Times. Uh, William Sapphire. Former Michael columnist Bush, for the New York Times. Michael Bushloss, who's mm-hmm. like their historian in residence there. All uh, Republicans. Uh, I don't know if Bushloss is Republican, but it, based on what he said, I, I, <laughs> I think he, he may be. But um, So uh, what, what, what some of them said were just, it was just infuriating uh, listening to them. I mean, uh, for example, Brooks basically went on to exonerate the administration. He said they didn't do it. They didn't do anything wrong, because this indictment is just about this trivial stuff that wasn't even related to what they what they originally wanted to go and get. Unlike and the Whitewater affair, he said, after two years of full cooperation from the White House, <laughs> this is all he could come up with. Well, that's just preposterous. Libby was lying. How, since when is him telling a whole series of blatant lies? When is that cooperating? This is full cooperation, yes. They were fully cooperating. <laughs> fully cooperating. By telling a series of lies. Yes. I mean, it was preposterous. This is a statement that. by David Brooks. Yes, right? yes. It's on, mm-hmm. he said that on, on Meet the Press. Um, so, I mean, the other, of course, the thing to point out and that they sort of glossed over was that Fitzgerald is being extremely conservative in his indictments. I mean, he was, he's obviously very careful, and he can only he's only indicting on charges that he's absolutely sure that he can prove. Um, well, the problem is there's a big difference between uh, what you can absolutely prove in a court of law and what um, what is an obvious conclusion about what's been going on. Because, for example, in order to prove uh, under the Identity Protection Act, uh, in order to convict somebody, you have to prove that they not only outed the person, but that they knew that that person was a secret agent of the of the CIA and that they, they knew they weren't supposed to tell anybody. Of course. Knew that, so it's very hard to, to take that state of mind and prove that Rove and Libby and others um, knew that she was, they may have, maybe they didn't know. Maybe they just were just using it as a um, as a lever against Wilson to punish him uh, and scare anybody else away who might be thinking of, uh, of uh, you know, of revealing information. So uh, it's, it, it's, it's just... A ridiculous. Uh, I mean, if it wasn't an undercover situation, there would be no point in trying to use it. I mean, it would it would have no value as a weapon, right? So of yeah. course they knew. Of course they knew yeah. that if she was undercover, that was a deliberate. But it makes no sense otherwise. I mean, why should why should I bother to point out that uh, your wife works for the chess club? <laughs> it's public knowledge. I yeah. mean, uh, it's not like I can extort anything from you on the basis of that information. Right. <laughs> so, any event, what what um, what. Uh, uh, so that was just kind of disappointing that the show sort of petered out and uh, in, in, in didn't really, uh, you know, emphasize the, the severity of the seriousness of this whole thing. Well, of course, clearly the Republicans are trying to minimize the significance of the charges. Yeah, but, I mean, one of the weird things is that, you know, I, 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 get, I, I, vote, I usually vote Democratic, uh, but 
you know, if, 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 if I, I'm not afraid to look at the facts and say, you know, this is a Democratic candidate who, or a Democratic politician who screwed up. But somehow they're unable to do that. They're unable to get these Republicans, they get people like Brooks and Sapphire and Bushloss who just are simply constitutionally unable to just sit there and say what's the obvious stuff. They, well, they, they, they they've perfected the art of having of the right-wing spin machine of having a monolithic view yeah. of all issues, and they're all everything is to be blamed on the the liberals and the liberal media, and error cannot be admitted. Why is that? Well, it reflects the underlying weakness of their case, right? It reflects the fact that the war is a fraud. Everyone knows that the war is a fraud. It's only a question of will it be exposed and how long can they maintain the pretense. So, therefore, this kind of dissent cannot be tolerated. It cannot be tolerated. I think it's across the board is so many of their policies, and going back to uh, Chris Mooney's appearance earlier in the show, so many of their policies are really directly, uh, they fly in the face of the facts. They fly in the face of reality. And so we can't have that. Then it becomes, they even resort to uh, denigrating people like us as being, you know, trivial uh, members of the reality-based community. Uh, where And, uh, you know, that's our that's our problem, right? We're a member of the reality-based community. And and so uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a serious pattern. It's a pattern of denial of reality. So, I mean, just uh, in terms of comparing this to other scandals, this whole thing is, to me, much worse than the Watergate affair. What distinguishes what's happening now from the Watergate affair is the fact that two things. One is the Senate was able to investigate the Watergate affair because there were Democrats. I think the Democrats were in control of the Senate, and they could have this investigation. Um, and the other thing is... Um, that um, there were the tapes. So after Watergate investigation got underway, they subpoenaed, they found out, somebody revealed in testimony that there were these, that there were these tapes. And they said, oh, wow. So they subpoenaed the tapes, and they got all these tapes. After a huge battle, but yeah. Yeah, but they got the tapes, and... Um, and then Nixon resigned, and really. Then, and then, you know, the much. tapes contained this totally, you know... Damning. Damning information, and um, that's not going to happen here. Neither of those two parts can happen, because... These guys are not going to keep tape. They don't keep tapes. Yeah. They don't keep, I doubt they keep anything. anything but it may be tape. possible, you know, by using standard prosecu- prosecutorial techniques like putting the pressure on Libby to uh, to flip, and it may be possible to get this information. Do you th- I don't think so. I think, oh, okay. I think Libby is like a Liddy. Yeah. Libby well. is a guy who will go <laughs> to his grave. G. Gordon Libby. Don't you think? I, I don't know. <laughs> Could I, be. Well, we have only one minute remaining, so uh, we can... Uh, uh, I fear that you may be right, Danny. Uh, I want to mention the last minute of the program, uh, once again, to support uh, Harry Reid's efforts to uh, force an investigation of the abuses of intelligence in the run-up to the Iraq War. I also want to mention to our, our listeners to look at the leftout.info webpage. We have a, an article in there about a revelation this week that the Gulf of Tonkin episode, which some of you may know, but was a crucial episode in getting us involved in the Vietnam War, was, as has been well known and well understood for decades, is in fact admitted to be a fraud by the National Security Agency. The uh, the intelligence that was used to justify escalating the war in Vietnam, which was based on a fictional attack on American ships in the Gulf of Tonkin and the, near the uh, northern part of Vietnam, was uh, made up and fictionalized. And this was very marginally reported. The relevance of it is historical, of course, but the fact is the U.S. government can, does, and did falsify intelligence in order to justify a war. And uh, the sooner we recognize this and the sooner we do something about it and realize it and recognize the, the threat, the better off we all are.
Well, that's it for Left Out this week. Thank you very much to Matt Horniak for producing today's program. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Thank you for listening.